0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today for the Middle Eastern Studies series, my guest is Andreas Guidi. Andreas is currently an associate professor at the Institut National de Langue and Civilization Orientale at INALCO in Paris, and he is the author of Generations of Empire, Youth from Ottoman to Italian Rule in the Mediterranean, published by University of Toronto Press in 2022. In 1912, Italy occupied Rhodes, which was an Ottoman town inhabited by Greek Orthodox, Muslim Jews, and even some Catholics. Rhodes became a territory of uh, the Italian Empire in 1923, following the Treaty of Lausanne, right one year after Mussolini seized power in Rome. The Ottoman demise corresponded to the expansion of fascist imperialism in the Mediterranean, with the famous motto, Mare Nostrum, our sea. Both the Ottoman Young Turks, earlier and the Italian colonial governors later, invoked the role of a new generation of youth in imperial rule. So Generations of Empire investigates the relationship between state and society in light of successive transformation of imperial rule rethinking Italian colonialism as a sort of a post-Ottoman history. Guidi explores how communal life in the town of Rhodes was affected by the transition between these regimes from an autocratic to a constitutional empire in late Ottoman years to Italian military occupation and eventually to fascist annexation. The book is based on archival sources in five different languages and from seven different countries. So the book investigates generational dynamics in the domains of political activism, the family, education, work, and leisure, and finally, even mobility, migration. And Generation of Empires does really offers a vivid picture of how a local society navigated large-scale social and political transformation in the modern Mediterranean. But before we delve into all of that, first things first, Andreas, welcome. Yeah, thank you so much, Roberto, for having me
1: on your podcast.
0: So let's start a little bit with the, uh, you know, basic. And so can you tell us a little bit more about your background? And also if you can tell us something about the origins of the book. Sure. So uh, I'm originally from Italy and I was
1: always been uh, interested in history, right? So before starting my uh, PhD, I actually worked on another uh, setting in Southeast Europe, the city of uh, Zadar Zara, in Croatia uh, today, which also found itself under Italian occupation in the interwar period after more of two uh, centuries centuries of um, Habsburg imperial rule. So During my PhD, I became more interested not only in uh, in Balkan history, but also in Ottoman history. And uh, I did my PhD in a joint program at the Ecole d'Altitude in Paris and the Humboldt University in Berlin. And uh, there I decided to expand my uh, research by choosing another case study uh, that concerned Italian occupations uh, in the region. So in this case it was the Dodecanese, uh, we're talking about islands in the uh, Aegean Sea, so at the southeastern corner of today's uh, Greece basically. And these islands are also very close to the coast of Anatolia. You can literally see uh, the mountains uh, of Turkey uh, only a few miles away from uh, from uh, the Dodecanese and Rhodes. So although I have chosen this uh, very narrow focus of uh, Rhodes town uh, for my for my uh, PhD thesis. From the very beginning, I wanted to avoid uh, the idea of writing um, a local history. So what I tried to do instead was to to use this focus, so the the life on the town of Rhodes, to raise much broader questions uh, concerning the history of two empires, the Ottoman and the Italian Empire. So looking back, I guess I can say that this book is really um, a blend of my interests, but also uh, a a synthesis in a way of my own trajectory so far. And uh, I'm particularly happy and grateful when I think of this book as also a possibility uh, for a dialogue between different historiographies. So on the one hand, the history of Southeast Europe or the Balkans, Then, of course, also Ottoman history, which also includes the post-Ottoman world. And thirdly, uh, uh, Italian history, including, of course, the history of Italian imperialism, fascism and
0: colonialism. I mentioned in the introduction that uh, one of the most interesting and fascinating uh, part of your book is that uh, actually brings together all of these different histories and it shows how Ottoman history is entangled with the history of uh, many different countries. And I was just thinking a few days ago, since we just passed the World Cup, when Croatia uh, were playing against Morocco, they actually at some point were part of the Ottoman Empire in different ways, but they were part of the same polity. And so, you know, these so far away countries that may look so different, but they were actually part of the same construction. So let me bring to my my question about, uh, uh, mm. you know, again, sort of a, the, the basic of a book. So the book, as you said, is about roots and the period between Ottoman and Italian rule. So I was wondering if you can summarize for us, you know, just basic information about the island, its population, and also how the Italians came to rule it.
1: Right. So I guess most listeners are pretty familiar with the uh, Italian-Ottoman war that uh, is also called Krablusgarh Savashe in Turkish or Guerra di Libya in Italian. And uh, this conflict took place between these two states, Italy and the Ottoman Empire, in 1911 and 1912. The main stage of this conflict was indeed the North African territory that uh, corresponds roughly at least to today's Libya. So it was on the one hand part of the European scramble for Africa, right? Italy trying to seize the last available territories uh, in North Africa, but it can also be approached as an important turn within Ottoman history because it happened right after uh, the Young Turk Revolution of 1908 that reintroduced the constitutional regime in the empire and also a new set of governance, uh, including in the Arab provinces. Now, fewer listeners might know that this conflict actually had broader implications in the Mediterranean. So, for example, there were naval operations uh, in the Adriatic at the Dardanelles, and most important for us today, they also led to a side operation by the Italian Navy in the Aegean. So the Italians seized several islands uh, in the Aegean Sea in May 1912, including Rhodes. And this marked the beginning of 10 years of uh, military occupation in what had been for, let's say, almost, 40, for, for almost 400 years, an Ottoman territory. This Ottoman territory was called in the 19th century the Vilayet of the Archipelago, or in Ottoman, Jezairi Bahri Sefid Vilayeti. And Rhodes had been, at least for a couple of decades, the capital of this uh, Vilayet, of this province. So Rhodes was an important town within the Ottoman and the Mediterranean uh, world, although, of course, it was not comparable to booming port cities of the time, uh, such as those that have been recently studied by uh, Malte Furman, for example, Smyrna, Salonika, or even, of course, the, the, the empire's capital, uh, Istanbul. But what is very interesting about Rhodes is that it had a, a confessionally diverse population that stood out even in an empire where diver- diversity was, uh, was fairly common. So in the early decades of the 20th century, uh, Rhodestown had a population oscillating between 13,000 and 25,000 inhabitants. And this population consisted uh, in quite balanced numbers of uh, Greek Orthodox, or more precisely the, the Rum community of the Ottoman Empire, Sephardic Jews and Muslims. There were also some Catholic families, and indeed the number of Catholics came much closer to that of other communities during Italian rule, so after 1912. And this was also the result of the fact that immigration of Italian citizens was favored by uh, Italian colonial rule. So let's go back very briefly to 1912. Uh, at the start uh, of the occupation, there was no consensus concerning the duration of uh, you know the stay uh, on the island. Although it was pretty clear that Rhodes had uh, a strategic place within a much larger vision, I would say, um, of a sphere of influence. Uh, for the italian empire in the levant so as we know the decade between 1912 and 1923 uh, was characterized by a heavy political turbulence in the region we have the balkan wars we have world war one the greek turkish war and Rhodes remained under italian occupation and formal ottoman sovereignty until 1923. so in a way it was of course impacted but not directly by all this uh, turbulence and it was in a way In the eye of the storm. Eventually then, in 1923, uh, the Ottoman Empire's demise was also sealed by the Treaty of Lausanne, and this treaty also marked the beginning of a sovereign and civil administration by Italy, so replacing military administration. What is even more interesting is that Italy itself Uh, experienced a very uh, radical change in terms of political structures in this, uh, around this moment, because, as you know, Mussolini and his fascist party seized power in Italy in October uh, 1922. So right before the negotiations at Lausanne uh, started. And so for me, Rhodes became an object to study at the same time the post-Ottoman world, but also fascist colonialism on the ground. Italian rule uh, in the Dodecanese and including Rhodes lasted until the end of World War II. And uh, we should also say that in 1943, uh, Nazi Germany, so uh, Italy's uh, ally in the Second World War, occupied the islands, but um, the islands remained under uh, Italian administration as part of this whistling, uh salo Republic in, in northern Italy between uh, 43 and 45. World War Two uh, also marked the most violent episode of Rhodes's uh, history, the deportation of the Jewish community, which was basically annihilated in the summer of 1944. And at the end of the war, after only two years of uh, British military administration, after uh, the uh, defeat of the Italians and the Germans, the islands were annexed by Greece where they belonged ev- ever since. So this is just a very short summary of this very complex uh, history.
0: Um, you mentioned many things and actually, you know, that uh, connects perfectly with my next question, because in my view, your book, Generation of Empire, mm-hmm. It's a book that can be read in many ways. You know, for instance, I focused on the Ottoman and Jewish aspects of the book, but really you can focus on Italian history, the question of fascism, but also, I guess, tangentially on Greek history in a sense. So I would like you to speak about uh, the central objectives of the book. Mm -hmm. Sure. So when thinking about the intersection
1: between all these historiographic trends that we mentioned earlier on, I also try to... Uh, reflect on what could be some common uh, trends, some common objectives uh, for my book. So the first one I would say is uh, reading Italian colonialism as post-Ottoman history. So we are used to think uh, of Italian colonialism and more in general, I would say, of European colonialism along quite rigid periodization boundaries. So basically, the history starts with the beginning of colonial rule. Sure, there is always a short prelude uh, concerning pre-colonial realities, but they are discussed mostly without really engaging with the specificities of those realities. So what I called the imperial consequence in the book is precisely the idea that we can move beyond a simple notion of Ottoman legacy. For this Italian uh, colonial territory. And my book argues that the latest Ottoman years uh, already contained the challenges that Italian rule tried to solve in the later decades. Um, this concerns primarily the transformation of imperial repertoires of rule based on difference. And uh, for uh, listeners who might be familiar with the scholarship of Jane Burbank and Fred Cooper, for example, uh, they will recognize this influence because, you know, they, they, they innovated this imperial history by stressing the importance of politics of difference, uh, as they call it. So the imperial consequence for me um, means that similar challenges for both imperial states led to different strategies and answers in different domains of society. So, for example, I included reflections on politics, of course, but also the domain of the family, education, work and mobility. So to sum it up, this first objective sees continuity between the Ottoman and the Italian period, not as the absence of change, on the contrary, as the constant adaptation that impacted both uh, imperial powers to challenge its emergence on the ground in roads. And therefore, again, Rhodes becomes this narrow focus that allows me to raise much larger questions concerning, for example, the transformation of imperialism. The second contribution refers to what I already mentioned earlier on. So uh, basically a study on the relation between state and society in the early 20th century and within this imperial framework. This, of course, brings us also to the question of intermediaries, right, that are among the usual suspects in this new imperial history. So who are the intermediaries? In the book, I use the term rule of interaction, because I give a lot of importance to communities and families in this story I tell. So communities, for example, were yet again, another factor of continuity between Ottoman and Italian rule, Um, In the late Ottoman years, they had received more power and incentives from the state to put roots in local societies, but they also stood under increasing state pressure uh, for integration in state structures, especially after the Young Turk uh, Revolution. At the same time, though, communities not simply persisted, but they were profoundly transformed after 1923, so during Italian civil administration. Actually, to the extent that we can basically say that they were reinvented during Ottoman rule. And uh, there's the example of the Muslim community, for example, that was institutionalized by the Italians, uh, whereas there was no such thing as a Muslim community in a predominantly Muslim empire like the Ottomans. Talking about families, we must say that they also participated in the transformation of imperial rule. They were not simply the receiving end of change. Families were the nucleus in a way where the real experience of empire pulsated and also where political authorities knew quite well that their innovations their sanctions and even their you know attempts to reward uh, local societies in terms of integration in, in in state structures actually you know they these all started with a negotiation between authorities and the local population so it's important to bring the families back in and one final point because i'm sure there will be others uh, coming up during our conversation. So, the third point is more, I would say, conceptual and concerns the notion of youth that is pretty close to the idea also of creating a new generation that was a widely used trope uh, in that period. So, if one thinks of late Ottoman and Italian history uh, of this period in general terms, uh, you know, one could be tempted to say that. You know, there's a simple transformation from young Turks to young fascists, so to Balilla, for example. In fact, although these, let's say, official um, political references are very important, what I try to do is to argue that representations of youth, as well as generational dynamics, uh, actually reveal much deeper interactions between communities, families and state authorities. So all of them, the state, the communities and families, talked about youth and generations to make sense of each other and of their interactions. For example, the authorities wanted to know more about how generations interplayed within the families. These families used their own depiction, their own narrative of generational dynamics to position themselves vis-a-vis the state. For example, in the case of um, uh, judicial procedures. Communities also talked about youth and generations to legitimize their role as representatives and intermediaries. So there is a famous uh, expression by uh, French sociologist, Pierre Bourdieu, la jeunesse n'est qu'un mot. So youth is nothing but a word. Because he says, uh, basically, class and social differences more in general make any unity of youth ephemeral. So there is no collective entity that can be generally labeled as youth. This is certainly true, but I also argue that uh, by looking at uh, how this word was used through the lens of the historian, we can actually retrieve, um, for example, the meaning of these interactions that I talked about. So what I do basically in the book is also to propose, to rephrase uh, Bourdieu's uh, sentence and state that youth is more than a simple word, but less than a coherent group.
0: We will certainly discuss uh, youth with more details later, but here I have a question about uh, Italian history, I guess. Uh, As I recently interviewed uh, Wanda Wilcox for the New Books Network about uh, her book, The Italian Empire and the Great War, I actually found it very interesting and very important at the same time that more works like yours are are discussing the colonial and imperial history of Italy. And so I, I was wondering if you can speak a little bit more about the Italian historical side of your book. Sure. Well, first,
1: let me tell you that I also really much uh, appreciated uh, Vanda Wilcox's contribution because her book really takes us away from more usual and familiar fronts and battles like the Isonzo or uh, Caporetto, you know. And she actually stresses that the experience of war, of the First World War, had a lot to do with restructuring and expanding the Italian empire and not just, you know, with redeeming the nation. This is the more usual uh, narrative. I also acknowledge other very important works that uh, have appeared recently and that really help us rethink contemporary Italian history as colonial and even post-colonial history. Without discarding, of course, the topic of nation building that remains very important. For example, I would just mention uh, the book by Roberta Perger about Mussolini's nation uh, empire, but also more recent books by Stephanie Malia-Home and Pamela Ballinger. And more specifically for the Dodecanese, uh, two authors uh, have have, uh, written extensively on on this uh, Italian period, Filippo Espinosa in Italy, and Valerie McGuire um, with her book, Italy's Sea. So what my book does in this regard, within this discussion, is to think that not only were nation and empire building strictly interwoven processes, but also that Italy built its empire on the basis of pre-existing imperial realities. In this case, in the case of Rhodes, in the case of Rhodes, an Ottoman local reality. So a second point concerns more specifically the discussion of fascism in the modern Mediterranean. We are used to associate fascist colonialism with the idea of mare Ostrom, right? This is the first trope that comes to our mind, because it relates to this ambition to control the Mediterranean. Actually, only a few studies uh, tackle fascism as a part of a more plural uh, landscape in the Mediterranean where you see other political entities and movements. Here I would just briefly mention uh, the uh, research by Alexis Rappas that investigates contacts and rivalries between Italian, British and French imperialism in the interwar uh, Eastern Mediterranean, for example, including Cyprus and the, and the mandates. But in my case, focusing on roads uh, again, has another advantage, that is to think about fascist colonialism in competition with other forces. So, for example, this applies to the surrounding states and communities, uh, for instance, uh, Kemalist Turkey, or the Greek nationalist diaspora that was pretty much active in, in the whole uh, eastern Mediterranean. But... Also, um, you know the interactions with these forces in roads, not just taking roads as a and the Dodecanese as a reference. So once again, um, fascist colonialism was something I argue to build and mold by interacting with the local setting. So I interpreted uh, fascism first of all as a set of uh, rhetoric signs, let's say. A language that could be appropriated by local families in specific configurations and situations. Um, also, fascism was a set of institutions, such as, for example, the youth organizations linked to the party or the black shirts uh, militias. And thirdly, and also closely connected to the previous two elements, fascism was a form of belonging that reinforced this idea of colonial separation and i will give a very brief example on this point so being full member of the fascist party was something reserved to full italian citizens right so access to youth organizations was open to everyone but only full italian citizens could become full members of the party now This is important because the majority of the local population in the Dodecanese had a sort of second-class citizenship, the cittadinanza egea, that the authorities actually saw as a form of subjecthood. So citizenship was more like a formal uh, denomination. Um, And this implied the absence of full integration in the national body politics. So this is very interesting because uh, young Rhodians could dream of becoming fascists But then differences in terms of of citizenship regimes could prevent them uh, from, you know, performing as fully uh, integrated in fascist structures after they turn 21. So as adults, it was a very interesting question for me to address.
0: So your work is a mix of uh, Ottoman, Italian, Jewish, Greek histories, which also means you have to deal with uh, sources and different languages. And I was just wondering if you can give us a brief sense of the material that you have used. You already talked about the literature, uh, but uh, if you have anything that you want to add also uh, where your book is placed in the current literature. Yeah, thank you, Roberto.
1: Actually, the issue of sources is so fascinating that I wish I could take you on a much longer (laughs) trip to Rhodes to give you a more precise uh, glimpse of, of actually the, the material I worked on. So let me say at the beginning that for me, the the question of, you know, di- the diversity of the local population was a central point in writing this uh, history. So it was necessary to work with material on different languages, precisely to try to move beyond this uh, approach that sometimes, you know, is reduced uh, to only one community within the Ottoman and post-Ottoman world that are know there are good reasons also to focus on one community and here maybe also referring to your question on literature i can i can mention two um uh, works that i found quite uh fascinating one by devinar on on jewish salonica for example where he studies the the continuity and change in the community from from ottoman to Greek rule. And then uh, a more recent book by Umit Kurt on the Armenians of Aintat. So of course, when you see that, you know, there is a particular um, uh, episode, uh, or where you see the emergence of a particularly brutal form of state violence, uh, including genocide, it makes a lot of sense to retrieve the story of one uh, community. But I was more interested in in also looking at the interactions between uh, different confessions and so on. So to go back to the question of uh, archives, um, on the one hand, uh, there is a very rich and diverse documentation in Rhodes itself, uh, more particularly at the Greek State Archive. So when I asked the archives director to have a look at the Ottoman documents that are more uh, that are less frequently used by the historians who visit the, the center. Uh, she just basically gave me the glasses and the mask and, and gloves and, you know, because they were covered uh, with dust. And this is really like the experience that every young historian kind of uh, dreams of. So. A particularly interesting resource uh, that I found in Rhodes is the collection of the local Italian police, the Carabinieri, that was discovered or at least recovered uh, a couple of years ago in 2013. Thanks, among others, to the work of uh, Italian historian uh, Marco Clementi that I want to acknowledge here because he also supported me during my research. Then there is a very rich collection of sources concerning the Italian administration that has remained in Rhodes. And I already mentioned the Ottoman documents that pertain to tribunals or correspondence with uh, state ministries. And there are also, of course, the like smaller archives of Greek Orthodox institutions, for example, the secondary school, uh, that we will maybe mention later on, but also the communal bodies, the local newspapers, and so on. For the Jewish community, the material I use is mostly in French, and you can find it in uh, Rue La Bruyère, in the 9th uh, arrondissement in Paris, at the archives of the Alliance Israelite Universelle, that are also incredibly uh, Detailed in terms of reports from uh, you know the the school directors that don't only talk about schools but many other things, and I also used oral histories that were recorded uh, in the 1970s and also in the 1990s and that are available online uh, for the chapter I wrote on uh, emigration to the U.S. In Italy, of course, you know, there are the state ministries and their archives, but also uh, the archives of a very important religious congregation, the There's des Ecoles Chrétiennes, that was then Italianized in the Italian period. They also ran an important school, but their material, again, covers many other domains of uh, society. So basically, this is a brief overview of... Uh, the uh, primary sources I used. I forgot to mention one: the archives of the French consulate uh, that you can uh, visit in, in Nantes. Uh, that you know, as you probably know, it's a collection that includes reports uh, from all uh, basically French consulates in, in, in the world. So the the case of Rhodes is particularly interesting because it was an observer. The consul was an observer of uh, a third party, let's say, neither Ottoman nor Italian. So it, it was very useful for me.
0: Let me delve into the chapters now. So in chapter one, uh, you talk about the emergence of youth as a political category. <clears throat> and uh, basically, you're making the point, and I'm quoting from the book, uh, that Rhodes experienced an incepting juvenilization of politics in the late Ottoman era, which became politicization of youth during the Italian rule. Can you speak about this process? Yeah, sure. I mean, I know this formulation might
1: sound a little bit obscure, so I'll try to pinpoint the main phases, right, of this uh, uh, process. Because once again, I think it it becomes evident that the book moves away from the idea that there is a linear transition, let's say, of indoctrination from becoming young Turks to becoming young fascists, singing Jovinezza, for example, the anthem, of the black shirts that literally means youth. So let's begin with the latest Ottoman years before 1912. Um, I would argue that there was no, at least significant, large-scale involvement of youth, for example, teenagers in, in political factionalism at the time. But there was, you know, this is why I said an incepting phenomenon, because there was a sort of Circulation within the political elite that started in those years, especially after 1908, uh, because offices and tenures became more accessible to younger, so not necessarily young, but younger politicians with less wealth. And a good example is uh, Theodoros Konstantinidis, who was elected as the first member of the Ottoman parliament in 1908, so the first sent from. from Rhodes. He was in his thirties and, you know, his network, his resources were not comparable to more established notables. Um, Actually, we don't know where this trajectory would have led because the Italian occupation in 1912 basically interrupted at least direct and official links with Ottoman state politics. So in those years, actually in, in the very first months after uh, the beginning of the occupation, youth became a term used by military governors to describe a danger, to describe the profile of the fanatic Greek nationalist, the Greek irredentist that was agitating for the enosis, the union with Greece. Um, but what is interesting is that in their view, these youth, these fanatics, were always manipulated by cunning elders. So youth at this stage was not yet a recognized as an autonomous force in politics. Moving on to the 1920s, we see that different institutions, so not only the colonial government, but also the communities, for example, used the trope of youth and of a new generation generation. Um, A lot so uh, increasingly and for example the italian governor mario lago see saw his mission in creating a, a new generation of loyal subjects i also add the term local so it's a loyal and local formula because lago wanted basically local youth to at the same time remain within the boundaries of his government so basically stay in roads and, of course, uh, show allegiance to colonial fascism. This project, of course, bore some fruit, but also, you know, it was also challenged. So in the 1930s, in the last stage, I would say, we see a new period in which youth properly became a political category. And what I mean by that is that talking in terms of youth increasingly corresponded to talking politics per se, talking politics to court. So this was not the prerogative of the fascist government because other nationalist ideas also circulated in Rhodes. For example, Greek irredentism that I already mentioned was increasingly appropriated by local students. The Muslim youth was attracted more and more by the political discourse of neighboring Kemalist Turkey, also through the uh, support of the local council, the Turkish council. And even within the Jewish community that was usually considered to be the most loyal by the authorities, we see the emergence of new forms of um, political activism around the Zionist revisionist movement in those years, in the 1930s.
0: I'm glad you mentioned, uh, you know, the emergence of uh, uh, these kind of movements. And if we have time, perhaps we can go back to the question of, uh, uh, you know, Zionism and fascism. But I want to move to the question of... uh, Uh, that you discuss in chapter two, uh, which is uh, sort of a relationship between state and family. And I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more how the family structure and role of of the family change between the late Ottoman era and obsolete Italian rule. Sure. I mean, for a work that, you know, addresses
1: notions of youth and generations, of course, uh, I thought from the very beginning that a discussion on family should be part of the story. And for me, it was also, you know, an effort to mix in a way a qualitative and quantitative uh, analysis of the sources. So for example, using at the same time petitions and uh, state censuses. Um, if we talk about criteria that are usually um, described by uh, the historians of the family, we could say that they did not change significantly across, you know, uh, the two uh, period of the Ottoman and Italian rule. So, for example, age at marriage, the percentage of unmarried men and women. These factors, of course, change a little bit, but not radically, or not only parallel to the political um, uh, phases that I described above, for example. But this stability actually conceals a lot of tension and uh, processes of adaptation. So, for example, uh, what I try to do in the book is to describe uh, marriage, so new uh, family unions, beyond the dichotomy of love versus arranged marriage, that is also a trope that You can find in, in, you know, in the literature of uh, social history in the early 20th century, for example. Secondly, for example, secondly, talking about the household, I observed that more and more younger uh, couples form nuclear families. So they kind of live more uh, farther away from the older generation this is not just you know a change in like cultural uh, ideas of of uh, relationships between generations but it also had uh, a material background because we can also observe that real estate property acquires new value in this period more and more uh, houses are rented for example and this changes the organization of the living space and of the household uh, as i said and um then maybe more closely related to the very use of the term youth and generations, I observed in this chapter that families interacting with the state very often describe themselves along these notions, by using this notion. And and especially interesting case is that of handout requests. Uh, If you look at the the language used by these individuals uh, asking for material aid, you can almost say that the fate of the family in the way they describe it, converges with the fate of the fascist empire. So they really put the stress on, for example, cohesion within a family that more and more reflects the cohesion and the mission of uh, Italian imperialism. And they're pretty aware of that. And I would say that this also concerns individuals of different confessions. And so in a way, you could say that through this appropriated language, sons and daughters of these families also become the sons and the daughters of the Italian fascist empire. This was an interesting uh, point that I tried to trace back in the chapter.
0: Now, if the family was some sort of a natural place where these generations grew, I would say that uh, schools were the place where these new generations were educated. And so obviously schools are sort of the uh, uh, setting for understanding youth par excellence. So I was wondering if you can give us a sense of how Ottoman education worked in Rhodes. Absolutely. So again, here we are back to this question of
1: how to make this history at the same time Ottoman and Italian. I can uh, jump back very briefly to the question of literature because there are excellent studies on, on the late Ottoman years, for example, empire-wide uh, studies by Ben Fortner or Francois Georgeson here in France that really make the link between the empire's high politics and the foundation of new schools. So school experience becomes increasingly a political experience. This is really important for me as well. But I also wanted to uh, retrieve, let's say, the inner logic of the educational field. That is not just in terms of state interference that you can observe both in the Ottoman period, the young Turks go and visit the schools more and more often. And the Italian governor later on also uh, has uh, educational reforms that are very interesting. I will not talk in detail about that. But I also wanted to see how all these changes uh, were experienced by the, the local population. So, for example, what it meant to send your children to this or that school that was it possible for most children to attend school until the diploma? Actually, I observed that there was a high rate of dropout. It means that innovations in school were, of course, important as a marker of the state presence. But the fact, you know, the possibility to use these innovations really relied on material resources. And it was often very hard uh, for local families to assure uh, complete education, and especially in the domain that I focused on in the chapter that is secondary education. One more thing that I that I can say is that um, looking at the transformation of of uh, schools, so in terms also of you know programs, buildings, personnel, you can at the same time, retrace the trajectory of uh, Rhodes as part of the two empires, but also give justice in a way to the diversity of the population that I talked about. So, for example, you see that uh, many schools were founded before the arrival of the Italians. There was uh, uh, an Orthodox uh, secondary school that I mentioned before, the Venetoclion. The Alliance Israelite Universelle had its own school, primarily but not limited to the Jewish community. The Ottoman state had already opened uh, uh, a secondary school, the Mektebi Dadie, in Rhodes. So when the Italians arrived, instead of of just, you know, changing everything along uh, one single standard, they tried to develop different strategies for these schools. So, for example, the uh, Ottoman, what used to be the Ottoman state high school, just becomes a communal kind of scuole turke. So it becomes... Uh, identified with the muslim element which was not the case before because you had also students of other confessions in the case of the alliance schools it is basically turned into a jewish italian schools with most of the teachers coming from italy so it also becomes italianized because the previous personnel was mostly francophone the uh, venetokian high school basically remains uh, in place, but becomes also the site of tension because it is always suspected uh, for being the nest of Greek nationalism in Rhodes. And in the case of the uh, Catholic school of the Frères des Écoles Chrétiennes, this was the most prestigious and also more expensive school to attend. It serves, let's say, as a blueprint to establish a sort of... um uh, Italian school that is called Regi uh, Istituti, so there was one for boys and one for uh, for girls. And this um, school was interesting because it is it does not completely fit the scheme of uh, Italian schools in the colonies, nor the scheme of Italian schools, public schools in Italy properly. So it was, again, a, a very specific arrangement. And this is why we need to look also at the prehistory before the arrival of the Italians to understand the specificities of each uh, institution. So again, studying schools is very important to you know retrieve representations of youth, but also to link these representations to the material conditions under which this new generation was supposed to emerge
0: you anticipated my question uh, which was very much about uh, this idea that obviously the italians uh, brought uh, major changes uh, with the introduction of a secondary education at least you know they introduced uh more schools in that sense and i was wondering if you can perhaps say a few more words about how future generations were educated particularly focusing on the curriculum if there are major changes that occurred mm-hmm. you know Shifting from the Ottoman to the Italians.
1: Yeah. So, although the the very trope of new generations, at least at the local level, was not as widespread as uh, during the uh, Italian period, you see a lot of discussions about, for example, punishments, disciplines, languages, already emerging uh, in the first decade of the 20th century. And this is important because it shows that. The common interest basically was to, to uh, invest in schools, in education to uh, transform uh, the life trajectories of the local population. This is something that really covers both periods. What is, I would say maybe uh, specific for the Ottoman period is this idea that um, you know education is something that needs to become modern that needs to become emancipated from previous structures. For example, you can see it also in the case of the Jewish community, the Allianz school has a pretty uh, a reformist attitude that uh, stigmatizes, for example, the Talmud Torah. So the more traditionally religious uh, schools that existed in Rhodes. Um, for the Italians though, I would say that, the, that schools became the best tool to create a rupture with the past. So I talked about continuities in terms of structures, but we should not forget that for the Italian government, uh, one of the aims was precisely to create a new generation that was not um, that much influenced by a previous socialization of their parents. So of course, exposing uh, local youth to Italian schools, for example, was seen as a, a, a means to foster loyalty but this again is part of the discourse you know so your question is is very important in terms of like what the authorities expected but if you look uh, more closely um at you know sources produced within the school you see that there are a lot of uh you know uh there is there is a lot of incongruency uh, there is um you know, everyday problems in terms of uh, funding, in terms of discipline, and so on and so forth. And I was really interested in this cleavage, let's say, between this idealized project of a new generation and what actually happens in school buildings, you know, because this is also how you can, uh, uh, you know, you can describe this project against this background. Did it really Correspond to what the students were experiencing uh, on an everyday basis.
0: Now, moving forward, um, I must say that I fell in love with your chapter dedicated to sport and leisure. There is an amazing story of this guy, Mustafa Boaji, who was a local bike racer. And you know, this is a fascinating story to follow through. Now, your point is that sport and leisure played a key role in shaping youth already from the Ottoman times. And so I was wondering if you can speak about this process and perhaps you can share with us uh, some of the stories in this chapter. But, uh, you know, I have a favorite one, which is the one of Kit Kat Cafe.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question because actually, you know, this is the only chapter that actually really connects to notions, that of work and leisure. And I think this is important because while looking at all these sources, I realized that institutions, but also families, basically uh, talk about, out the professional experiences of their relatives, for example, but also their use of free time in the same document. So, I, you know, this is a way to connect the, the local reality with much broader discussions that happen worldwide by economists, sociologists um, about the value of free time and also the, the dangers, for example, posed to, you know, public order or morality. Uh, if more and more, like broader and broader segments of the population, had access to recreation, to sports, um, and to other free time activities. So, uh, you mentioned the case of this uh, uh, racer Mustafa Boyagia, and for me it was like interesting to use him, his story, as an entry into this discussion because you can see that he was very successful as a local sportsman. So the Italian official newspapers dedicated some uh, uh, articles uh, to him, but at the same time, if you look at the files produced by the local police, uh, the description of this man, uh, you know, turns more toward a negative uh, picture of someone who is constantly indebted, you know, has a very um, uh, promiscuous, uh, sentimental life, and so on and so forth. So I was interested in this nexus between no- the normativity of leisure and an increasing stress on productivity. So more work for uh, men, but also on morality for uh, women. And uh, this is also the chapter that uh, more explicitly uses a uh, gendered perspective on youth, because once again, um, I'm, I, I forgot to say that, like youth. Uh, uh, is a very wide category, and that most of the protagonists uh, in this book are are men. But uh, you know, this includes also reflections on on ideas of masculinity uh, and so on and so forth. We see also this uh, example of interactions between um, between genders in the case that you mentioned, the Kit Kat Cafe. So. Roads uh, already back then was uh, a very um, was a quite popular destination for tourism. Of course, not to the extent that one would observe after World War II, but the Italians invested a lot in, in recreation sites for tourists, like the Grande Albergo delle Rose that you can still see today. It's the casino of roads today. But next to this, again, more institutional projects what was very fascinating for me was to see that the local population actually um, took their own initiatives to build and to found these recreational sites. And the Kit Kat was uh, basically a a cinema and a summer resort, so there were many activities involved. And you can see by following the paper trail uh, of the local police that uh, it was a site where interactions between, for example, Italian soldiers that were themselves, you know, pretty young in their 20s and local women happened. And sometimes, of course, as you can imagine, these interactions at least raised the suspicion that, you know, uh, uh, the contacts between uh, the Italian national body politic in Rhodes and the local uh, population of the Dodecanese would transgress for example, sexual and moral boundaries. So you know, this uh, talking about this institution was a, a talking about this site was a way to give a more vivid picture of everyday life in roles, but also stressing that this everyday life was pretty much linked to 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 politics, basically. So talking about these innovations in the domain of uh, leisure, exp- especially. Um, uh, concerning the uh, Ottoman period, there is this good example of the uh, sport and cultural club actually called the Agoras that was founded in 1905. And uh, it was part of this pride of the local Orthodox community to have its own, not just institutions, but also, uh, again, like um, opportunities to, you know, for the for the, their co-religionists, the, the uh, Orthodox youth, Uh, to meet and mingle and practice sports and so on and so forth. This institution then became also a a site where uh, books were read, where cultural activities were performed, and the Italians then increasingly had the suspicion that this was also linked to nationalist ideas, so basically too much Greek culture in an Italian colony. And you can see a direct consequence of this uh, suspicion because in 1929, <clears throat> so already in the Italian period, this uh, institution founded in Ottoman times was shut down for a trivial reason, apparently, just because there was a a, a discussion concerning, a, again, a race, but, uh, but it reveals how much even sport activities and free time was linked to this ambition to control uh, the sociability of the local population and you can also see this in the domain of football because then after this society is shut down then the Italian governor of course has to open new clubs under the control of his uh, uh, of his government of his rule too because it was clear that you know the local society could not live without uh, leisure and free time of to- activities but Previous institutions had to be domesticated in a way that is restructured and re-founded according to uh, a way that could fit Italian colonialism.
0: I have a couple more questions uh, as I want to just wrap up this interview, and one is, uh, you know, about context in a sense that, uh, you know, context dictates how people live and how this youth eventually grew uh, in roads. And so, in your last chapter, you're talking about uh, migrations. And you make the point that in Rhodes, you have two kinds of migration. One that is divergent, which is more affecting Jews and Orthodox uh, that mostly move to the United States and also convergent one, uh, mostly of Italians arriving in Rhodes. And so, you know, I was just wonder if you can give us a brief sense of uh, what what is, uh, you know, sort of your last chapter about. Of course. Yeah. So
1: this was important for me as a last chapter because it opens up again, uh, towards something that I already mentioned, namely, how to use a small, uh, a limited, a narrow focus to really expand by following the trajectory of people on the move. And roads was not just the site of, you know, imperial transformation, but also of mobility, continuous mobility in both uh, the late Ottoman years, and then the whole Italian uh, period. So, As you said, I used two, uh, I mean, one approach, but two notions to describe this mobility, uh, because I realized that uh, in the late Ottoman years, you see mostly Jewish and Greek individuals and families that emigrated from the same place, basically. So they used to live in Rhodes. They oftentimes took the same ship. They arrived in South and North America. I had a case study Uh, on on Seattle, for example, in the book. And you see that basically generations matter because the more the time passes and the more this proximity is basically erased. So even though those who arrived in America slept in the same houses, worked in the same factories, for example, at first, you can see that in the uh, a few years later, the first attempts, for example, to to rebuild a community in America, also produced a separation of former neighbors. One could say so. There is a this also resulted in two very distinct narratives of emigration. So there is no shared memory of Rhodian emigration that you know includes both the Jewish and the Greek perspectives. And if you look at the map uh, of the United States, for example, you can also recognize that the sites where these individuals and their descendants actually ended, you know, are quite different. But the first steps in their emigration was something common. This is what I argue in the book. And you can follow basically a symmetric trajectory if you look at those who arrived in Rhodes, because as I already mentioned, the... um, Italian governors favored the immigration of, uh, of uh, Italian families, although we are not talking about a massive uh, like a settlement uh, project. but you know there were some villages, for example, that were populated by Italian farmers sent from the kingdom. In this case, I use the term convergence migrations because what we call the Italians in roads, are actually a pretty diverse uh, galaxy. So on the one hand, to, to sum up just in very general terms, you have those who arrived in Rhodes as soldiers and policemen and decided to stay on the island, even either by bringing their families from the kingdom or by marrying local women, which is also a specific aspect that I looked at in the chapter. Um, the other pattern is that you see a lot of families from former Ottoman towns, so they literally embody this post-Ottoman transition because they come from places like Smyrna, for example, and they arrive in Rhodes uh, in the 1920s. There is no decree of expulsion, let's say, but they see Rhodes as a place where they can start over, you know, and that is more familiar to them than many towns in uh in Italy properly. So again, it is interesting to see uh, how, on the one hand, the state creates to, the state tries to create like a common national identity in this colonial territory, yeah, by, you know, uh, uh, having these two uh, groups uh, mingle uh, more and more at schools, in the party, and so on and so forth. At the same time, you see that there the way they socialize, in roads the those from the kingdom and those from former ottoman territories uh, have some differences uh has some um the way they socialize uh, shows some differences right that again has a lot to do with the material conditions uh with which they arrived on the island some had a you know pretty easy Uh, transition through their mobility could found a stable job, but many of them actually were among the most marginal because they represented the privileged group, right, the Italian nationals, but at the same time, they did did not have any link with local society. So they also experienced kind of this migrant uh, 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 life and this inventing home uh, that Uh, Ahmed Suat Khater talks about in the case of the Lebanese uh, diaspora in the United States. That was a concept that I use uh, in general in the chapter.
0: So in the conclusion which you call uh, the Imperial Coda, your epilogue, you remind the reader that you did look at Italian fascist colonialism as an imperial consequence of the late Ottoman year. I think this is a very, very crucial and important aspect of your book. Uh, but in general, can you draw some conclusion for us?
1: Yeah, uh, so I decided to write this epilogue, the Imperial Coda, by uh, focusing on the war years, on the Second World War, and actually just the immediate aftermath of the war. Because, well, first of all, is let's say, you know, the, the, the last period before uh, the arrival of the British army and then the integration in the Greek state. So this would open new questions. But also because I think that, by using this very last moment of Italian rule, this idea of commonalities and adaptation between the Italian period and the Ottoman period uh, can become more uh, evident. And this also appears as something evident when you follow the trajectory and the experiences of the local population during the war and also look at how it was transformed uh, after the hostilities Uh, officially ended so for example you see uh, that um, uh, the sport club that I mentioned the Agoras uh, that was founded already in Ottoman times becomes again an element in which youth is really stressed you know as the mission the sport club to educate youth but under a new framework that is now the uh, Greek nation-state but the Greek nation-state refers back, again, to the experience during the Italian years, but even to the very foundation of the club in uh, the Orthodox community of the Ottoman Empire. Another uh, case, for example, concerns the, the uh, Muslim community, because already during the war, you see that many families tried to uh, find shelter Uh, in Anatolia, oftentimes by leaving, uh, you know, uh, without uh, official papers. So they are smuggled in, basically, uh, Turkey. And then you see reports uh, by the Turkish uh, ministries and diplomats about what to do with the Muslim community after the war ends. And here, the notion of imperial consequence is important because one element that they always stress is the absence of schools in uh, post-war roads. And again, uh, they refer to the uh, schools that the community used to have uh, already in Ottoman times, and they were then marginalized, was then marginalized in the Italian period. Um, One last uh, and uh, most tragic example that, that I could mention is uh, one um particularly important but also tragic example that I can mention is also the fate of the Jewish community so again I already um mentioned that the community was deported in in, in July 1944 but the uh war the last months basically of the war and then the first month after the end of the war also uh, is the moment where you can observe the attempts to return to Rhodes uh, by the few survivors and here again you see families who try to uh, uh, start a new life in a totally devastated Jewish neighborhood in a almost desert uh, part of town that they used to know and uh, through this very difficult process you see that they also try to get in touch with relatives who had emigrated in Ottoman times. So, once again, with these three examples, you can see how, uh, you know, even after the end of Italian rule, and this is where my narrative stops because I argue that it's also the end of this longer imperial experience, th- there is a common story to be told that uh, concerns the last years of Ottoman rule and the uh, period of uh, Italian administration.
0: This was Andreas Guidi, author of Generations of Empire, Youth from Ottoman to Italian Rule in the Mediterranean, published by University of Toronto Press in 2022. Andreas, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was a very nice discussion.